Hello, it's Ritika, Kaite, and Nari, and you're listening to The Context Cast. Hi there, my name is Nari, and in this episode, Ritika and I interview Dr. Charlotte Stagg, who is a professor of human physiology at Oxford University and head of the Physiological Neuroimaging Group. Charlotte's research primarily focuses on understanding how the brain adapts to new challenges, specifically in the recovery of motor function after stroke, using multimodal approaches in treatment to help develop new adjunctive therapies. So Charlotte, thank you so much for making time to see us. Would you mind giving a brief overview of your background and how that led to the career path you're on now? Yes, of course. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So I'm Charlie. Um, I did medicine as an undergraduate subject. So I thought, age 16, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And I went to medical school and realised very early on, actually, that I wasn't very good with the blood and needles, ill people, parts of medicine. But I really loved um, the science and I really loved physiology in particular. So I did a physiology degree halfway through and then went back to medical school, finished that. Um, and worked as a doctor for a couple of years um, and really became very, very sure that I liked the science and I didn't particularly like being a clinical doctor. I then decided that I wanted to do a PhD. I probably wanted to see if I wanted to be a scientist. And at that time, I had been living down in Bristol, in the West Country in the UK. And my then boyfriend, uh, now husband, was in London. And after four years of driving up and down the motorway, we got a bit fed up with it. And so this is not how you should choose your PhD. (laughs) We got the map out and I looked at places that were about halfway between Bristol and London that might do some decent science and found Oxford and thought it looked much nicer than any of the other places on that line. Um, so applied here um, and came to do my PhD and EPhil um, and then stayed. And it was a lot of fun. I loved I loved my research. I still work with patients, we do a lot of clinical research, um, but I really enjoy the day-to-day work. That's really interesting. Ritika and I were talking earlier about how the majority of people we speak to once upon a time wanted to become doctors, but eventually led to discovering that research is something that they want to do. Um, And this leads me to my next question of what is stroke? And more specifically, what is it that you do? Yeah, yeah, of course. So we work with um, people who've had a stroke. So stroke is when um, you get a loss of blood flow to one part of the brain. So it can either be a little clot or a little bleed in the brain. And if it's big enough, it will cause the death of some of the brain tissue. And that leads to people very suddenly having symptoms. And depends which bit of the brain it's in as to what symptoms they have. But you might find that people suddenly can't see in one part of their vision or they can't speak or they can't move their hands or their legs. And we are quite good at treating that very early on. A lot of people make really good recoveries early now. Um, But we know that a lot of people are still left with problems after they've had a stroke. And we know that people get better gradually over time, over months to years. But we don't really understand what's happening in the brain that means that people who really couldn't move their hands slowly learn to be able to. Um, And so what my group, my research is particularly interested in is understanding how we learn to do specific movements with our hands, how happy people do that, um, how we learn to play the piano, how we learn to play sport, how we can learn motor movements, and then how that is disrupted after a stroke and how we might be able to help with drugs or with brain stimulation or with something else um, to try and um, help people to recover that function. 
You mentioned brain stimulation. Would you mind giving an overview of what brain stimulation is and how you use it in your research? Um, so the idea of non-invasive brain stimulation, which is what we do, is that we absolutely are not surgeons. So we don't cut into people's heads. So we stick very much outside the scalp. The idea is that we put very small electric current into the brain. The brain is an electric organ. It's how it functions. It's how the cells communicate with each other. And it's how we can move and talk and do all the other things. So what we um, try and do is just gradually change, modulate very slightly. It's like slightly nudging the activity of the brain to just help it do it a bit better. The best analogy we've come up with really is if you've got a small child on a swing and if we think the healthy brain is swinging quite a lot because you've got a child who's worked out how to swing itself. My children are still quite young, so I sort of saw this in action over the last year. And there comes a point when you're growing up when you work out how to swing yourself, right? And then you can start going really high. But before that, you're kind of just wibbling around and nothing's really happening. What we're trying to do with the electrical stimulation is push at the right point so we can help the child swing to get higher and higher. And then we think, it's an analogy, that the higher you swing, the better that is for the function that you want. So we put in electrical currents or we put in tiny magnetic fields that change quite a lot that induce electric currents um, to just try and push that swing to try and help the brain's natural rhythms and boost the rhythms we think are important for learning. Do you think that brain stimulation techniques, apart from the direct effects they're supposed to have, also have any indirect effects? I think that's a very, very good question. <laughs> um, they undoubtedly have other effects, right? I mean, everything. Humans come as a sort of complete package um, and we have massive psychological buy-in to these things. The placebo effect is something we you know, deal with all the time. It's amazing how if you put something on someone's head and say, this is going to make you better, it makes you better. Um, so it is really, really important to consider that. We are very careful to control the things we know about. The best way we think of controlling for most of this stuff in all kinds of brain stimulation is to do it to the bit of the brain you think is going to do the thing that you want but then also do it as an active control. So do exactly the same thing to the neighbouring bit of the brain that shouldn't have those effects, with the idea that if it is sensation or sound or you know, vascular changes or all kinds of things that have been suggested and are entirely reasonable, you know, it may well do all those things, then you should sort of control out for that and you should be left with really, hopefully, the sort of main effect that you're interested in. Research is always pushing what we can record, right? So we are, you know, we do work mostly in humans and there are really good reasons for that, but we can't get the detailed recordings we can get from our animals, which is why we use our animals. Um, you know, we can't put electrodes in people's brains, basically. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like it, we don't get ethics right. Um, and that's fine, so we have to do everything non-invasively. Um, and that means we can't get quite the precise measurements that we can get in other, in other ways. Um, and so we have to be really careful that the measurements we are getting, are, we understand what they are telling us and what they're not telling us. And we really push the boundaries of what we can measure um, and what the MRI scanners can do and what the you know, our other scanning approaches can do. It's really um, amazing, actually. It's, it's, it's good fun. We work, one of the delights of my job is that we work not only with a great a group of brilliant neuroscientists and clinicians, but we work with the physicists and the analysis people, got mathematicians, got engineers, got software engineers, got you know people who take MRIs by heart. Um, and really, it needs that kind of multidisciplinary approach to get this stuff to work. And that's really exciting because mm. you learn all kinds of stuff that 
you never thought you would as a neuroscientist, it was great. Do you think outcome can be accurately predicted early on for an individual patient? Uh, that is the key question and it's really strange talking to academics who don't think that's an important question because you speak to one patient who's had a stroke and that is the first question they will ask, right? And it is, of course it is. What everyone wants to know, no, we can't. Um, there are some algorithms now that are reasonably predictive. So about 85% of people we can sort of give an approximate answer to. But that means that 15% of people we can't and we don't know who that 15% are. For science, that's pretty good, right? Like 85% prediction, we'd all be quite happy with that. But uh, for clinical work, that's not good enough because with that, you know, you need to be able to do it for every single patient because the patient doesn't care that you can do it for everybody else, they care that you can do it for them. I think there are two great myths of stroke recovery that are not helpful for people who have a stroke and their carers and not helpful for research. One is that if you have a bad stroke to start with, that's it forever. And it isn't. You know, people can really recover. It depends on all kinds of factors. Um, and the second is that people only recover for the first six months and then there's no recovery after that. And that isn't true either. People can recover for years and years. Um, so there's hope. There's <laughs> definitely, definitely hope. And there really is, and people do recover. But I mean, it gets harder. It's hard work. You yeah. know, it's much easier to learn stuff as a kid than it is as a grown-up. And what we're trying to do is work, you know, trying to some level to work out why, right, so we can try and help. How do you think that this kind of non-invasive brain stimulation therapy, for example, can be taken to places like developing countries that are low in resources? I think that's a really key question. So the classic brain stimulation technique, the sort of the clinical application of this really, is deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease. So people who have Parkinson's sometimes have um, DBS when they have an electrode implanted into their brain and it is for the right people it can be revolutionary it's not for everybody but that is neurosurgery it's incredibly expensive and there's a map of where it's done and basically the map was North America and Europe and a bit in China but that was it and the rest of the world was just grey and you're like yeah that's not quite you know it's not really where we want to be is it um, so absolutely the kind of experiments we're doing at the moment trying to understand this stuff is very technical it's very expensive it needs a lot of people you know it's not going to be around the world it really isn't there are one or you know, a handful of centers around the world that are doing this stuff but the actual brain stimulation um, especially the electrical stimulation actually and one of the reasons we're particularly interested in it is that it is basically just a battery and two pads, right? So you can build one. If you Google the right thing on the internet, you can find the instruction. Don't, don't build it. Do not use it on yourselves. It's not a good idea. But you, know, it, you can get it for $50, right? So if we can work out what we should be doing with it, it's really scalable. You can sort of, you know, that's the kind of technology that you can really imagine going out around the world, right? despite the fact that it's not as effective as the surgery and that you don't get as beautiful recordings as you do if you put an electrode in someone's head and all the rest of it, that's why we're keeping pursuing it because it has, if we are going to make any difference, we have to be able to do it in a way that is, you know, at least applicable to most of the global population, even if not all of them. Okay. Can the mechanisms underpinning recovery be clarified to optimise recovery? So that's what we're trying to do, is trying to work out what on earth the brain is doing with the idea that if we can work out how either healthy people learn new things or how people naturally recover after stroke, we can try and intervene and boost those mechanisms and make them stronger mm -hmm. with the idea that um, that will help people recover. 
We think it's a useful thing to do because there's sort of beginning to be little tiny hints that that's true. So there are small studies that need to be proven in, in bigger clinical trials that brain stimulation, so you mentioned direct current stimulation, after stroke, when you do it at the same time as physiotherapy. So we get people in, we give them the brain stimulation, we get them to move their stroke-affected hand. Um, people who did that, um, who had brain stimulation at the same time, got much better compared with people who did that but had a placebo, a sham stimulation, and stayed better for at least sort of, well, we measured them for three months and we kept in touch with them because we knew them quite well, but for at least three months. There's a real idea that if we can, you know, we understand a little bit about what that bone stimulation is doing, and sort of in its basic form that seems to help, what we're now trying to do is understand the next step so that we can make that brain stimulation better and then intervene a bit better and then hopefully make those effects even bigger. And with the brain stimulation that you just mentioned um, induced, like, was how often was it induced within the period of three months? So they came in um, Monday to Friday of week one and Monday to Thursday of week two because we didn't want because we didn't want to come in at the weekends um, and they didn't want to come in at the weekends it's a massive no intervention, does. nobody does <laughs> like, do you want to come to the John Radcliffe on a Saturday afternoon? no, right um, so I mean, it was, they were really tired, it was a massive thing for them and they were amazing to do it yeah, our researchers were quite busy for those weeks and they came in and they had an, they had an hour session every day and the first 20 minutes of that they had stimulation did the therapy for the rest of the hour and then they went home and they came back the next day okay um, I actually read your like most recent paper on the dynamics of cortical GABA in human motor learning. This would be an amazing opportunity to kind of expand a little bit on interesting results from that paper. Thank you. I'm always, like, I'm always very daunted when people have read these things. Um, so, yeah, so, as I say, we're very interested in what is happening in the brain as we learn stuff. Um, and we can look at that in people who've had a stroke, but they've had a stroke they tend not to be very well um, and so it can be a little bit difficult um, to do really long intense studies with them you know, it, it's very difficult to stay in the scanner for two hours mm-hmm. so as a sort of model we take undergraduates who tend to be quite happy to lie in the scanner for two hours and return for some cash um, <laughs> pop them in our MRI scanner <laughs> and look at what happens in their brain as they learn a new motor task so what we actually do is do a motor sequence so it's like a very simple piano piece and there's a sequence of buttons that you press and that repeats and repeats and repeats and you you get better at it over time it's not a fascinating task but people get better at it and what we are then doing is looking at what's happening in their brains whilst they're getting better with the idea that that's probably also what's happening when people who've had a stroke are recovering Uh, so this study we used MRI scanner to look at the concentrations and the amounts of various chemicals in the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, We were very interested in two chemicals in particular, which are the neurotransmitters, so the way that the cells communicate with each other to allow us to do stuff. There are lots of them around, but the two sort of major ones are glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter, which means if the first cell signals to the second cell using glutamate, then the second cell becomes more active. And we're also interested in looking at GABA, which is the inhibitory neurotransmitter, which means if the first cell signals to the second cell using GABA, then the second cell becomes less active and stops doing stuff. So the way we work, you know, our brains work is that we're in this sort of delicate seesaw between these two things, because we need to be able to do stuff, but we don't want activity absolutely everywhere because then we'll have um, seizures and bad things will happen there. So there's a sort of balancing act. But one of the things we 
have discovered through this study and through other things is that in order for humans to learn, what we need to do is just reduce that inhibition, so reduce the break a little bit to allow the cells all to just become a bit more active because that allows them to produce, we think, allows them to sort of produce stronger new pathways that allows them to learn the thing they're trying to learn. So that decrease in inhibition is really, really important. So I think that was the key takeaway of that paper. We are very interested in hand function. Um, and the primary motor cortex, as the name suggests, is the sort of major motor area of the brain. That's the area that mainly controls our hands. So when we learn something with our hands, we see a decrease in this inhibition there. We see a decrease in this break. We get more activity there, and that seems to be a mechanism by which we learn. But we see similar things in different brain areas as well. So if we look at how we learn a visual task, then we see that change in inhibition in the visual system. If we learn a um, a space navigation task, then we see that in the uh, temporal lobe. We see it in the bit of the brain that's doing the learning and not everywhere else. So it's not a general thing. It only happens in the bit of the brain that is trying to learn that particular thing. So did you come across any challenges when conducting this study? Yes. I mean, I think research is always challenging, whatever kind of research you do. Um, so my work up to very recently has been entirely in people. We've started working a little bit in mice just recently because um, they're very, you know, we can learn some really important things from that work. Um, but most of our work is in people because we care very much about complicated behaviours. Um, mice do not learn to play Chopin nocturnes, however much we try and teach them. So we're very interested in doing it in people. I like working with people, it's fun. You get to know our participants, it's great. We do work with 18 year olds quite a lot. They always turn up at 8am? No, they're always pretty good actually. They're pretty reliable um, and they're pretty good fun. So sometimes they don't learn. I'm terrible at learning motor tasks. It's completely ironic. I, my, <laughs> my group refused to let me take part in any of our studies. They're like, you're terrible, you don't learn anything, you can't do it. Uh, so some people are good at this and some people are bad at this. And you know, this is traditional that about halfway through a scan, someone will need to go to the loo or need a drink of water or will fall asleep. That's the commonest one. Um, so there's lots of lots of challenges that you learn um, with working with the with the scanners and the scanners are big bits of kit and we have a, a research scanner that there are really not very many of in the world it's mm-hmm. a very high field um, and it like you know it's a very delicate piece of kit and it breaks um, and we have researchers here who are trying to make it work better which they do and they are brilliant um, but every so often in the process of making it work better it breaks so it's not always not always plain sailing so would you say your planning stage of the experiment was just like pretty much smooth sailing that study probably was so it was building on work that we'd done before and we had a really clear hypothesis we had a really clear question and it's probably unique of all my papers actually we had a really clear question we knew what it was we it was fairly easy to work out how to collect the data we collected the data we analyzed it it did what we thought it would do we were bright in our hypothesis and we wrote it up and that basically never happens um, but that is the one example where it did. So, like, you mentioned a lot of fancy equipment. So would you mind just giving, like, a brief overview of the common equipment that you use on a regular? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I work at the WIN, which is the um, University Brain Imaging Centre. And we are very lucky in that we've got a lot of cool kit. So most importantly, most expensively, certainly, uh, we have a big MRI machine. Most people will be familiar with the idea of MRI. They're in hospitals. Um, and it's a magnetic imaging and what you do is you put people into the scanner, there's a magnetic field, and um, we can just slightly excite the protons in the brain, and as they relax back, they release that energy, and we can look at that energy coming back and form images. 
And so if you go into the hospital for an MRI scan of your brain or your knee or whatever it is, you'll get these beautiful images. What we do is, A, we've got a stronger magnet. Uh, So the 7 Tesla magnet is strong enough to pick up a double-decker bus. We're very, very careful about metal anywhere near it because it just gets sucked in. So it's really useful because it's so much stronger. It allows us to really look in detail. So we get much more detailed images than we would with a standard scanner that you'd find in a hospital. That's quite cool, but as I say, there aren't very many of in the world, and we do, and we are pushing it all the time to do new stuff. So it does tend to break reasonably regularly. So that's the MRI scanner. We've got so we've got a seven Tesla, which is our fancy one. We've got two, three Teslas, which are still much more normal ones that we do brain research on. We've got all our brain stimulation kit, which we sort of talked about. So we've got our electrical stimulation. Um, we've got our magnetic stimulation. So we deliver a very short magnetic pulse of about a Tesla, so smaller. That one would just pick up a car. Um, and that will cause um, an action potential in the brain, so it will cause the cells to fire. And so if you put it over the primary motor cortex, we've talked about that already, so the bit of the brain that controls the hand, you get a twitch. So we can use that to see how easy it is to get information from the brain to the hand, so that gives us an idea of um, how active the brain is and what it's up to, which can be very useful. Um, and the other bit of kit we haven't talked about, but we should talk about because it's cool and it's new and we think it's really exciting, is ultrasound. So again, people will be probably familiar with ultrasound from scanning babies, right? The thing you put on the mother's tummy with the gel and you get a nice picture of the baby. Great. Uh, So this is the same thing, a slightly different frequencies, but we put it on the head. You can, again, use it to just change how the brain cells are firing. So use that to try and push that swing. And the exciting thing about that is we think we can go quite deep in the brain. So we can get all the bits in the middle of the brain that are really, really important that none of our other techniques will allow us to um, interact with. It's really amazing. <laughs> We're very excited about it. <laughs> now, talking things that don't work, that has been years getting that to actually function, but it is now working. We're beginning to do some experiments. So that's... Really cool. Yeah, we're quite exci- <laughs> we are quite excited about it. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see how much of it works. But um, it's been a real engineering challenge. What are the biggest challenges you've had doing this throughout these years? And what does a day in your life look like? Yes, I was shocked that one of my DPhil students is organising a 10-year anniversary of our research group. I was like, I don't know where that decade went. I've been incredibly lucky. My students and my staff, they have been brilliant. Um, I run the research group very much as a collective. Um, we're not very hierarchical. Partly because I think we get better science and partly because I do not have the time to micromanage people. <laughs> Uh, and so they're given quite a lot of freedom and they do brilliant things with it I think you know I, I should have looked it up somebody said you, you hire brilliant people and you let them get on with it right and I think that's what you do and I want them to have the ideas that I don't have because I can have the ideas I have I want them to have the ideas they have um, and I want them to argue with me so that has been fantastic and mostly I've just been really really lucky um, increasingly I have realized that actually I'm just going to work with people who are nice human beings because it just makes the world a better place. And once you've made that decision, actually, the lab becomes a really nice place. Uh, what does the day look like? It's a giant juggling act. Uh, so I've got two children and two dogs. Actually, the dogs take more energy than the children sometimes. Um, yep, the mornings are getting the kids to school, getting the dogs fed and walked, um, and that's all done by about nine. And then I'm like, surely I've done the day's work, and it turns out I haven't. So I get to work at half past nine, and then it's meetings with the group, they don't let me near actual experiments very much anymore. So um, occasionally I get to go and play with the kit, but less than I less than I used to. 
helping them with papers and grants and all the kind of stuff that makes the machinery go around. I mean, my job primarily is to get the money for this to carry on um, and to help people progress in their careers, be that get their PhD or you know get those papers, get that grant, get that next postdoctoral position. Um, and that's the nice bit, actually. I mean, I love the science. I love the science since I do it. But actually seeing people progress and get... Yeah, get their PhDs and then go on to postdocs and then go on to being a PI is just really lovely. No, it sounds very corny, but no two days are the same. So I do a bit of teaching, I do a bit of lecturing, I collaborations from all around the world, um, just finishing up revisions on a paper from um, a group that we collaborated with in Taiwan, who are brilliant. Um, I had a visitor from Australia today. It's a really global game um, and it's really good fun. Do you have any advice to your younger self and what would be the best way to get into science? I think the most important thing is to do things that you really love. I think there's an awful lot of pressure on people to follow certain career paths. We talked a bit about people sort of feeling that they should do medicine. And I think partly because, you know, most of us, I think most scientists, you know, like science and want to help people, mm. right? I mean, who, who does it? You know, who doesn't? <laughs> um, and I think we sort of get, you know, cornered into medicine, but people get sort of cornered into other things as well. And I think having the courage to realise that it's not right, it was very stressful at the time, but I'm very, very pleased that I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I think I want to do research. I think that's what I really, really want to do. Um, and it was a really difficult decision at the time, but it was the right one. So I think I had... You know, advise people to really think about what excites them and that doesn't have to be what interests everybody else but you've got to find your thing and it doesn't really matter if all your friends go oh, it's really boring You're like fine I don't think it's boring I'm gonna do it but have courage in that and yeah have, have courage in your, your ideas as well pursue the ideas you think are worth it I sort of laughed and said our option has been a giant engineering challenge it's taken over 10 years and it's working. And it's taken over 10 years of amazing groups of amazing people who are not me. You know, I sort of turned up occasionally and gone, oh, is it working yet? No? Okay, fine. You know, it's been, but it's been a wonderful group of engineers um, and physicists and all kinds of people making it work. And that really has been just doggedly going, this is going to be cool. This is going to be important. This is going to allow us to answer questions we can't answer now. And those are important questions and we're going to keep going. Mm-hmm. So I think having, yeah, the determination to keep going so working out what it is you really, really want to do and then having the sort of determination and the courage to think, you know what, I'm just going to keep doing that. Yeah, and rejection is my every direction, as cheesy as that sounds. It is true. It is true. doesn't always feel like it at the time. No, but, it does. <laughs> but yes, I mean, being an academic, it is a career where you get told the many ways in which you're not very good at something a lot. And it is really important to learn that not, they might not be right and that actually... That's, they can have that opinion, but you can have another go and do something slightly different. Um, and these days, I sort of, you know, when I get rejections, which we all do all the time, I sort of, I get cross about it. And I allow myself about a day to get really annoyed and just grumpy about it. And then I'm like, right, okay, I've done that now. How do I go on from here? And I think that's the important thing is, yeah. I think acknowledging that you are going to be upset by it. And then, yeah, thinking, okay, have they got any points? Should I listen to any of those things? Should I redirect myself slightly, or actually, am I just going to keep going with that? Uh, one more thing is, you've been here a while now. How have you seen it change? I have been here. I've been here eighteen years, which feels like quite a long time. I think 
One change that I've really seen that I have noticed and I appreciate is I think we are much more inclusive and much more diverse as a university than we were 18 years ago. I think we, that has genuinely changed and Oxford's had and certainly probably still has to some extent a reputation of being quite elitist and I think that is becoming less I think we are absolutely and unashamedly intellectually elite and we always will be like you know we take people who are incredibly bright and that is what we do and I'm not going to pretend for a minute that isn't what we do but I think that's the only I think that's the thing that should matter and the rest of it doesn't and I think increasingly it's feeling that that's true I think we've got more senior women around I think having Irene who I've known for many years as an early director of the centre who did my transfer report terrifyingly um (laughs) is now our vice chancellor she you know she having another woman as the head is really important I think the I think the place is changing I don't think it's changing fast enough um so I want yeah I want that to carry on I'm at St Hilda's which is one of the former female colleges it's really lovely it's really inclusive it's really interesting and it's a sort of model for what this place could be like there are other places that are less like that and I think I would like to bring them all <laughs> all with us. Um, so I guess that's the most important thing because I think, I think the science we do is brilliant. I think the only way we're going to carry on doing brilliant science is if we get all the brilliant people. Um, not all of them. Some other people can have some of them. But the brilliantest of the brilliant people. Um, and that involves everybody. Oxford is not for everybody. But if you think it might be for you, then apply. You know, and if you think neuroscience might be for you, then apply. Find out. Don't don't be too scared to try, because the worst thing that can happen is that you fail, and that's okay. Yeah, um, and we all do all the time. But if you don't try, you'll never know. Um, and I think it's really important for Oxford that we encourage people who feel like they don't belong here, because people do belong here, and it shouldn't matter, and it matters less and less what background people are from. People feel like it's for them, and they feel like they want to do neuroscience, then they should give it a good go. And if it doesn't work, that's fine. Go and do something else, that's okay. You know. But if you don't try, you'll never know. In this podcast with Charlie, we dived into the many kinds of non-invasive brain stimulation techniques used to study how humans learn new tasks. She explains her experience of being a physician scientist and group leader at the University of Oxford and details the nuances of arranging and managing interdisciplinary efforts to build, run and analyze data from large-scale studies with human participants. She also shares her perspectives on how the scientific community of Oxford has evolved over the years and advises the next generation of scientists on how to deal with rejections and failure. Thanks for listening in on our conversation today. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Please keep an eye on our social media to find our next one.